0: It seems to be happening earlier and earlier every year. I walked into one of the malls back in mid-November, and what do I find in their center display? A huge Christmas tree in mid-November. The retail guys here are working harder and harder every passing year to bring Christmas goods out earlier and earlier to to understandably make as much money out of Christmas as possible. Actually, where I'm from in the UK, uh, the guys back there, they've been doing this for much longer. You can usually see Christmas crackers for sale in places like Sainsbury's from September onwards. So many shops are cashing in on the Christmas season as early as they can possibly get away with it. As we mark this fourth Sunday in Advent today, it's the last Sunday, of course, before Christmas Day in a couple of days' time, billions across the world are getting ready. Uh, The presents are being hastily wrapped, unless you're as disorganized as me, in which case I will see you at the shops tomorrow. Husbands are remembering and then probably forgetting the essential ingredients for the Christmas lunch. Again, that will be me tomorrow. But, of course, as Christians, we, we quickly want to say... Well, Yeah, but Christmas isn't really about those things, is it? The the shopping and the presents and the food. It is about the birth of Jesus Christ, the most important birth in human history. And that is, of course, right. We we look back 2,000 years ago. The reason Christmas is truly worth celebrating because God entered into our world in the person of His Son. But even when we as Christians think about Jesus at Christmas time I suspect the image in our minds is that of the baby right in the manger asleep, cute looking very peaceful as the carol goes away in a manger, no crib for his bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head, the stars in the heavens looked down where he lay the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay The little Lord Jesus. It is such a safe picture, isn't it? A a picture that, for for the most part, our world, Christian or not, celebrates little baby Jesus in the manger. So tame, so harmless, opposing a threat to no one. And yet that is not how the prophet Isaiah saw the events of Christmas that would unfold many, many years after his own lifetime. Isaiah is also looking forward to Christmas like us, but of course in a very different way because he lived in a very different time. He lived in Jerusalem, the city of God's people, about 700 years before the events of Christmas. And Jerusalem in Isaiah's day is in great decline. Let me just give you some very quick background. We see in the opening chapters of this book, his prophecy in Isaiah, Chapter 1, verse 2, for example, everyone loves a bribe, speaking of God's own people, and runs after gifts. Later in verse 23, they they do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Jerusalem at this point, as Isaiah is prophesying, is in great moral decline. Uh, Her sins are heaped up high, and so God promises for Isaiah as he said he would, though he has been so patient with them. He will judge his wayward people. Uh, That's the dominant theme of the first six chapters of Isaiah. But as we come to Isaiah 6 today, we see some rays of light in the midst of this otherwise dark picture of judgment. We have the sign of Emmanuel, God with us. A son on the throne of David, God's king for his world. Isaiah looking forward to the birth of Christ, to Christmas. But we mustn't get the wrong idea as we start in these verses. This is not going to be how we normally see Christmas, little baby Jesus in the manger. No, here we encounter the God who is not tame, who is not harmless, even though he is fully good. Here we encounter the Holy King for all our world who is worthy of being feared. Let's come to our first point. Firstly, beholding the holy king, Isaiah 6, verse 1. Read with me. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Against the backdrop of a dead, unclean king, Uzziah of Israel, Isaiah is given this great vision. Within the temple of the living, holy king, high and lifted up, seated on the throne. In fact, he is so high up, he is so exalted, it is not actually God that Isaiah sees, but simply the train of his robe. It's, it's It's a picture of his majestic glory. And it shouts to Isaiah, behold, look, see. Your God is so transcendent, so awe-inspiring, you don't really actually have words big enough to describe him. You you can talk about his throne. You can talk about the train of his robes. We're meant to feel great reverence, wonder, even terror at this incredible sight. The words of the seraphim and order of angels, they they add to the sense of awe here. They say in verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, that the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, in the English language, we have a way of expressing when something is of the the highest degree of magnitude. Uh, We say fast, faster, or fastest. Or we say great, greater, or greatest. That's what we call a superlative. I looked it up last night. Fastest or greatest. In Hebrew, the language that the Old Testament was written in, they express a superlative by repeating it. So the angels repeat three times, holy, holy, holy. It's the only time in the Old Testament where a word is repeated three times in a row. So this isn't just a superlative, it is a super superlative. It's as if I couldn't just say God's the best, But I have to say he is the bestest and then bold, italicized, triple underline all at the same time. That's how holy God is. Really beyond our understanding, actually beyond our words. But what does it mean? I mean, what does it mean for God to be holy beyond words? Well, holiness fundamentally means to be separate, to be set apart. It's not just about God's moral purity, although that is certainly part of it. No, it's more than that. It is about his sheer transcendence. That God is really in a class all by himself. That he is like no other. He can be compared to no other. It's good for us to stop here and just ask ourselves, is that how we see God? You know, we know God is love, yes, and we know God is merciful. We know God is kind and that is wonderfully true. Do we know God is holy, holy, holy? As someone who is also not like us, do we need to recover a sense of the holiness of God? The theologian David Wells once wrote this, uh, one of the marks of our time is that God is now weightless. He has become unimportant to us. He is less interesting than TV, less authoritative than our appetite for affluence and influence. His judgment is less inspiring than the evening news, and his truth is less compelling than the evening adds. So, if we begin to find that the God we worship is like that, then maybe we are not worshipping the God whom Isaiah beholds here. We are warned by God and his word that the unbeliever has no fear of God. Not no knowledge, no fear of God. Because he thinks he can get away With his sin before God, it is either unimportant or it is hidden from him. And so he does not behold God, as Isaiah does, as the holy king who will judge. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And yet the believer does wisely fear God, even as he knows God is on his side. He is to work out his faith in reverent It's much like what the Apostle warns the Philippian Church, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Simply put, the one who knows God is the one who fears God who does not take their salvation for granted, who does not play fast and loose with obedience. In fact, the prospect of disobedience, of sin, though we commit it, yes, leaves us trembling. And that leads us to our second point, responding to the Holy King. Come with me to verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost. Heaven touches earth, the holy meets the unholy, and Isaiah is rightly terrified. Have you ever seen a block of sodium react in water? It was probably for me the most amazing experiment I ever got to witness in high school science. Uh, our teacher took this large uh, glass cylinder full of blocks of raw sodium kept in kerosene oil out from his very secure storage area. And we found out soon enough why you need to store sodium in kerosene oil. As our teacher very carefully, with very large tongs, he picked out one of these blocks And he dropped it into a tub of water which he covered straight away and then he ran to the back of the room where we were all standing and watching with delight. In just seconds, this tub of water went from dead calm to incredibly violent. It started bubbling furiously. The lid exploded off, flames shot up in the air to our sheer delight as a group of schoolboys watching the oxygen in that water react and annihilate violently the sodium that it had come into contact with. It's what we call an exothermic reaction. And it's really quite something to see, but only from a safe distance. Sodium and water do not mix well. One will necessarily destroy the other completely. Here we see heaven touching earth. The holy comes into contact with the unholy, the shaking and the smoke that's described here. They say, do not come close. This is dangerous. You see, in our sin, we cannot come face to face with God and hope to survive because God is, as we've seen, holy, holy, holy. By his very nature, he must deal with all that is not holy. Isaiah knows he's in trouble. See how he cries out. Verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, for I am lost. You notice what causes Isaiah to say this? It, It is not the sight of his own sin. It is not the sight of a society collapsing around him. It is simply the sight of the holy King seated and exalted on his throne before him. And in response, to the angel's declaration of who God is, all Isaiah can do is cry out, "Unclean! I am a man of unclean lips." You know, I find myself doing this. We all do this. We constantly measure up ourselves spiritually against one another. We say, not of course, not out loud. We say in our minds and in our hearts, "Oh, they're so unspiritual." They never come to any Christian social activities. Oh, they're so proud. Never listen to the advice I want to give them. But then we measure ourselves against God, and we find that no one can declare woes on others. We simply have to say, like Isaiah, woe is me. And yet the turning point now comes in this vision in verse 6, because as heaven touches earth, so the holy touches the Read with me from verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. An angel flies to Isaiah. This burning coal from the altar touches his unclean lips And by doing so, is said to remove the guilt of his sin. Isaiah is cleansed before God, but it is nothing to do with him. You see how passive he is here? Isaiah doesn't win over God by pleading for mercy. He doesn't try to bargain. He knows, woe is me, my situation is hopeless. And yet out of the smoke comes not judgment, but redemption. The Holy King takes the initiative. The Holy Cling cleanses Isaiah. The comedian Shel Silverstein has written a poem called The Dirtiest Man in the World. I'll just read a few lines for you. It goes, I can't see my shirt. It's so covered with dirt, and my ears have enough to grow flowers. I'm musty and dusty and patchy and scratchy and mangy and covered with mold. If you look down my throat with a flashlight, you'd note that my insides are covered with rust, I doubt we'd want to spend an evening with such a filthy person. And yet, friends, that is how dirty we are spiritually. I know I am. We've called every bad thought that we've fought in the past week. Every time we've put ourselves first selfishly at the detriment of another. Every unkind comment we've made, whether fair or not, but that should not really have been spoken. All that dirt, all that rust and mud that clothes us that makes us unlovely before God. And yet amazingly, like here, he does not run a million miles from us. It is God who provides the spiritual soap and water we so desperately need. He stretches out his hands to us. You see how Isaiah 6 is looking forward to Christmas? God deals with Isaiah's sin as he will work to deal with sin in the only way sin can truly be dealt with in the cross of his son. No, Jesus, not just the little baby Jesus in the manger, but God's holy, righteous king who laid down his life and shed his precious blood that we might be forgiven, who, unlike any of us, aimed to love his father first, and so did so by going to the cross to die for us his enemies, that we might be saved. As we confess, I am a sinner, but I know that Jesus has died to deal with my every sin. And so our guilt is taken away. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Can I first say welcome? I'm really glad that you've decided to join us this Sunday morning. But secondly, please see from Isaiah here that the Christian faith is not about us going to God. In any sense, it is never about us striking some kind of deal with him. I know I've done these wrong things, but I've done this and I've done that and I've done this and done that. So now, isn't that enough? Will you accept me? No. It has always been and will always be about God first coming to us. You don't have to try and earn your way to relationship with God again, because none of us actually can. You don't have to speculate about whether you will be safe in his presence for eternity. No, instead, behold the Holy King. Acknowledge you need saving from your sin, as Isaiah does here. Acknowledge acknowledge that Jesus alone has died to deal with your every sin and so receive by faith forgiveness and new life that God grants to all who repent and believe on Christ as Lord. That is why Christmas is worth celebrating. Because of who Jesus is and what he will become for our sakes. Recognizing him as our savior and king. The gift that we cannot hope to face God without and live. Now maybe you're not ready to bow the knee to Jesus yet. Can I just encourage you to join one of those Christianity Explored groups in the new year. Consider Jesus' amazing words and works for yourself in his word as we meet together to consider it. But for those of us who are Christians today, remember every time you're convicted afresh of the the reality of your sin, every time you sincerely say, woe is me, we must remember Christmas always too. That we who were once unholy and unfit for the King's presence are declared now holy through Christ alone. You see, Christians who have gone long and far in their walk with Jesus, they all have this one thing in common. They know their sin intensely. And they know God's holiness deeply. And they feel the tension of that gap every day. But they know Jesus who bridges that gap. And that's why they love him and they love others all the more for what he has done for us. Having seen this vision and responded in appropriate fear, Isaiah is now commanded go the king has spoken it's our final point this morning go verse 8 and i heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall i send and who will go for us then i said here i am send me the holy king he's in his meeting room and he's wondering who he can send on this vital mission isaiah steps forward here i am send me You see, he's seen the holiness of the king, he's experienced the grace of the king, and so now he finds he wants to do the will of the king. He is a transformed man. That is the mark of true conversion, isn't it? Not merely some emotional high or dramatic experience, but in a readiness to do, to desire to do what God has commanded. How do we keep going in ministry, in serving God and one another? It is only as we maintain a right and compelling vision of what God has done for us, his great grace to us in Christ, that he is so holy and we are so not, but in his love he has forgiven us and made us clean for eternity through his son. That, that's why if you, if you look on the bulletin here, I'm surprised how, how many of us don't, if you look on the bulletin, you see our mission statement at SMAC, it speaks of how we are doing everything together in response to the grace that God has shown us in Christ, because that alone will enable us to do what God has called us to do and continue trusting on him. That alone will fuel us for the long and difficult journey ahead before we reach the day of his kingdom. And Isaiah, in particular, does have a long and difficult journey ahead. We see his mission. He has to preach, and yet he is told ahead of time, by the way, no one's going to listen to you, Isaiah. He will proclaim, no one will understand. Verse 9. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on hearing, uh, sorry, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah is basically te- being told, the ministry I've set you aside for, says the Lord, well, it's, it's effectively like me, uh, listening to my in-laws speaking in Cantonese. I can hear the very passionate, very loud tones of the dialect, and I have absolutely no idea what they're saying. Hopefully not about me, but I have no idea what they're saying. Their words are just background noise to an Angmao like me. Well, fe- effectively, that's what's going to happen to Isaiah. He doesn't have to preach a complicated or obscure message. He just has to preach and preach and preach and preach until his people reach the point of no return. Until their lack of response is beyond clear. It's just another sign of God's judgment on them, as in their sin, they refuse to hear what he has to speak to them, lest they turn and repent. Isaiah is being sent knowing full well he is going to get a negative result. And what is even a bigger surprise is that Jesus quotes this very verse in describing his own ministry in John 12, as we saw in our New Testament reading, where he makes very clear that his gospel, as it goes out, as it's preached, will have a divisive effect in our world. It will save those who respond to it by coming to him, but it will judge those who reject it and run away from Jesus as king. The good news that we share will not be accepted and delighted in by all. That's the reality. Isaiah's not being called to a fail-proof ministry. He's being called to a faithful one. And so are we, friends. The next time people don't respond the way that you want them to, as you share with your neighbor, with your family, with your friends, why Christmas is really worth celebrating, and the next time they they run the other way, though you've pleaded with them to come back to God, they hurl insults upon you, Hang on, hang in there. Keep going. Because, like Isaiah, it is a faithful and steady ministry that God is looking for, not a 100% success rate. It's no wonder Isaiah cries out in verse 11, "How long, O Lord? How long must I serve in this seemingly hopeless ministry?" And the Lord responds by basically saying, "Until my people are ruined." So we read on from verse 11, "Until cities." Lie waste without inhabitants, houses without people. The land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Imagine this afternoon, you go out for a drive. You want to just do a tour of the city. You go around Subang Jaya and PJ, Munkiara, Brickfields, Cheras, Kajang. And all you see out of the car windows are abandoned condos and office lots. Permanently closed restaurants and shopping malls, rubbish just piling up on the sides of the roads. That's what God says will be the situation for Israel. In fact, they won't even remain in the city. They are going to be removed in exile from the land of God's blessing as they have been warned, brought about by God because of their stubborn, unrepentant sin. But we read the end. That like the single stump left after a forest fire, there will be a remnant who survive. God is going to keep a people for himself. In judgment, there's hope. Because just as one single tree stump can bring forth new life, so God is going to bring forth new life from his people. We read at the end of what seems to be such a depressing passage. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth for an oak whose stump remains when it is filled, felled. The holy seed is its stump. Just a ray of hope. The holy seed refers to the future faithful people of God, the ones out of which new life will go according to his promise, so we can wrap up on this end, on this note of hope. It's a terrible judgment. This one little stump is going to remain. God loves to move at the very moment when all seems lost. That's what he loves to do redeem sinful rebels like us and transform them when all otherwise seems lost. But it only happens as we say, woe is me, I am lost. When we truly begin to behold the Holy King who is our God, when we we don't import ideas of who God is for ourselves, but we allow him to confront us as he truly is. As long as we think we can make our own way in life with just a little bit of help from God like this magic genie, We have not seen God. He's not on his throne, the throne of all, including our hearts as his people. But when we begin to sense that God is not like us, when we begin to know him as a consuming fire, as Isaiah sees here, and as we as Christians look into the face of his son, Jesus, full of grace and truth, we can never be the same. And St. Mary's will never be the same because we will bow before his throne, beholding our king as we worship him from the heart. We will go out as he commanded us to be his witnesses to his world before a final judgment does come, sharing the good news that is able to save to the utmost. Do you want to hear something really encouraging? Despite all of the issues that we had with the Christmas guest lunch a few weeks ago, with political protests. We had to change the venue. We planned two events. We had to take it down to one lunch in a different venue that we'd never used before with a team that we did not know. There were so many issues. And yet, despite all those things, more than 40 unbelievers, having attended that single lunch that we held, have said, yes, please, we want to be followed up. And many of them are planning on joining the Christianity Explored ministry next year. God loves to work when all seems lost, friends. And we are simply called to fear him, to trust him, and to get on with the work he's called us to do. So let's be doing that both this Christmas time and in the new year ahead. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, in your grace and in your love, reveal yourself to us in your word and in this prophecy of Isaiah as you are. And you do so that we might wisely fear you, that we might repent of the sins that we know we are guilty of, That we might say with Isaiah, woe is me, and yet at the same time rejoice that you gave that first Christmas morning your son, our savior, our king, who is able to save to the utmost all who would depend wholly on him. So help us this Christmas, this coming year, to be those who are humble, who continue to rely on Christ our Lord and rejoice in him. And as we do that, help us by the power of your spirit to be those who do, like Isaiah, go out. Who remember we are not called to a fully successful ministry, but to a faithful one. And help us, therefore, to speak the power of your gospel to those who are yet to know Christ, that they might rejoice with us before the end. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.